When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. It's brought to you by The Athletic along with The Square Ball. I'm Dan from The Square Ball. Uh, Michael is here as well along with Phil Hay from The Athletic. Uh, we're twice a week now, Mondays and Fridays. This is the, the Friday edition. Now, normally we would uh, do it straight after the press conference, but with the turnaround this week of the midweek game and the Spurs game being on Saturday, we're recording ahead of Jesse Marsh's press conference at Thorpe Arch. Um, however, we will be previewing the Spurs game in due course. We're going to reflect on Wolves, talk about the uh, the takeover stuff. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to read Phil's stuff on the website. Pound a month for six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And just to give you a quick heads up as well, uh, hang around at the end of this show to hear a taster of Away From Home, which is the Athletic's new documentary series. It's an access all areas thing. Uh, with Ukrainian team Shakhtar Donetsk. A fantastic listen. And final bit of information to convey is that we are taking a break after Monday's post-Spurs show. We're going to come back just after the World Cup, just before the season resumes, just before Christmas. Unless something happens in the meantime, Phil, we will talk about takeovers in between times, won't we? So we'll get to all that. Should we start with Wolves? You went. How was it for you? It was an enjoyable evening, actually. Uh, enjoyable game to watch and a bit of intrigue in it because of the, the lineup that Jesse Marsh picked. It, it was quite difficult from the reaction to the team to work out if people were pleased to see the under-21s involved in the way they were or if people would have liked a stronger lineup or potentially a stronger squad. I think even more no- notable than the kind of understrength team or, or how young the lineup was, certainly the, the front six. Um, that Marsh went with was how young the bench was. I mean, it was one of those nights where a lot of people in the press box were saying to me, "Who's this? You know, who are, who are these people?" So you know, scrambling for um, for Google to to find out a little bit about the, the sort of wider reaches of the the under twenty one squad. Um, I suspect people coming from the Leeds area will relate to this when I say that pound for pound, Wolves is the worst drive in the the country. I don't know what it is about it. I think when you go to the south coast, you kind of get it in your head that you are going to be on the road for three hours, three and a half hours, four hours. But Wills doesn't feel that far. It doesn't look particularly long distance on the map. And it somehow seems to be one of these grounds that isn't just a couple of motorways and then fight through a short bit of town. But anyway, we made it. Um, we made it for kickoff, which was great. I thought Leeds played okay last night. I thought they played pretty well. I thought they were in the game, competitive. I thought most of the youngsters, certainly the debutants who played, did as well as they wanted to have done without being perfect. I really like the look of Perkins in the periods where he was good. Um, written a piece on him today, which focuses a little bit more actually on what's going on between Leeds and West Ham and the process of trying to arrange a fee for a player who West Ham were very, very unhappy to lose. And Leeds were delighted to, to sign in a player who's been scoring for fun in the under-21s. Matteo Joseph, I thought, was was very impressive as well. Lively, good movement. Um, his positioning pretty unpredictable, made him quite difficult to um, to pick up. And JB, without being brilliant, I thought um, had a you know fought the good fight in the centre of midfield. And it does seem to me that if you are investing 
in this this talent ID scheme, which Leeds are. And as much as we criticise Leeds quite a lot recently for various things, I think talent ID is one thing they do particularly well. And I do like a lot of the kids who they've they've picked up. I think if you are going to invest in that level, it's important that you do actually play these players from time to time. And it felt, even though Leeds lost last night, it felt like the right occasion to me. What did you make of Galhart? And what do we know of his injury so far? We didn't get much of an update on his his injury. It looked like um, a twist to his ankle or something along those lines. We'll see Marsh tomorrow. And the reason we're recording pre-press conference this week is just because the short amount of time between the presser tomorrow and the Spurs game uh, means that you, you wouldn't have a lot of time to soak this this podcast up. I would say that Gelhart is trying to find his mojo somewhat at the moment. I think whereas I was impressed with Joseph and Perkins and I thought JB had a good night and Hilda as well at the back, actually really good game. It was more difficult for Gilhart. He doesn't seem to have found his flow or, or to have found those little touches of magic that he had last season. I think that's partly because he hasn't been used very much and it hasn't been a season that's really lent itself to that. But yeah, I, I think I sat last night and I looked at him and I thought that. I looked at Harrison and thought that there's a definite dip of form going on there. There's another player who who needs to find a little bit extra and, and a little bit of something from somewhere. But as far as the game went and as far as the team went, I thought they were competitive. I thought they were in the tie. I thought they could have won it. I, I did think they, they could have won it. But in the end, Wolves turned the screw when it mattered. Last sort of 10 minutes. Came up with a, a very good goal. We'll probably feel like they deserve to go through. Anybody else stand out for you then apart from Perkins maybe? Um, as I say, Joseph, I thought was good on the left. Um, potentially even more of a threat uh, when he when he came central in the second half and then moved up front after Gilhart came off the pitch. But I did think Hilda uh, was was decent at the back. It wasn't a weak Wills team. It was changed. There were six changes, so it wasn't full strength either. But you did have, as I put it, the kind of physical muscle of Adama Traore. You had this kind of mental muscle of Ruben Neves, extremely good midfielder. So it was a, it was a good examination for them. And I thought Helder did a good job at the back. I, I do like the look of him. I think he is a centre-back rather than a left-back. I think if he gets his way and, and plays where he prefers to play, then he'll be a centre-back uh, moving further down the line. But between him and Creswell, it makes me feel that defensively, they've got some good options coming through at a young level. Ahead of the Barnsley game, Angus Kinnear wrote in his programme notes, in the last two years, our laser focus on confounding the odds to retain our Premier League status meant the two Cups couldn't receive the priority we all wanted to give them. This season is different as we have the tactical foundations and the squad depth to mount campaigns on three fronts. Victor and I have have a particularly poor track record in the Cups, having witnessed numerous early exits, including humiliations at Crawley and Newport. We therefore share a personal desire to give supporters a Cup run we can be proud of. How does that sit with what we saw last night in terms of the lineup and the result? I actually went back through the the full transcript of the interview that we did with Andrea Radrazzani um, in August to see whether or not he'd mentioned cup runs because Marsh has spoken himself about the the progression as he sees it with Leeds this season, next season, over a kind of sustained period of time is to move towards winning trophies. Um, And clearly that means going somewhere in one or other of the, the cup competitions. And I think, as it turned out, they were in the tie last night and, and they could have won it. But I don't think what was on the bench gave them a huge shot of turning the game massively when they needed it to. And it was very hard to look at the, the squad that was chosen and not think that the priority was Spurs at the weekend and, and Marsh was very much keeping that in his mind. I remember a while back speaking to a coach who was talking about the cup competitions in England and he was saying that 
the clubs who set it as a priority or a target for themselves at the start of the season, and, and it's quite a small percentage, are doing so because they either want to make money from it or they want to win it. And across the Premier League and the Championship, the, the two divisions where you're likely to get a winner, and let's be honest, Premier League more than anything else, most clubs in there realise that they don't necessarily have the depth to go particularly far or they, they are likely to get done by one of your, your bigger clubs. And and it's interesting because we did the, the pre-match Q&A as usual before Wolves and somebody said in there, to use their words, the big boys never take this seriously so we should have a go. And then you look back through the list of winners starting last year and it goes Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester City, Manchester City, Manchester City, Manchester United, which is a little bit like Oxford, Cambridge and Hull. Ho, ho. Manchester City, <laughs> Chelsea, Manchester City. So although it's true that not all of your top sides go a huge distance in it, and there were quite a few notable um, exits, uh, Tottenham last night, Liverpool going through on penalties eventually, Arsenal losing to Brighton. It does tend to be the case that in the end, power and depth of squad works. And it's funny how often the cup ties come up at a point where there are constraining factors. So your form isn't great or injuries don't allow you to do what you, you want to do. And you know, a few people said to me, well, there are no games after Saturday. You know, after Spurs, wide open space. And okay, some players will be away to the World Cup, but some aren't going to play for weeks. But it doesn't change the fact that the physical exertion and the impact of a game on a Wednesday night could have a big bearing on a game down at Spurs on a Saturday afternoon. Had it been a Tuesday night game at Wolves, perhaps it would have been slightly different. I suspect not. I think Marsh would have done that regardless. But I think for obvious reasons, he will very much have his eyes on Tottenham. Given the lack of games now until the World Cup, do you think there was a sense maybe that he was just wanting to test out some of those players to get a, a look at them at a higher level, maybe with January in mind? I'm, I'm just already trying to think ahead to justifications for not buying a striker. <laughs> we can go, well, Joseph looked good. Well, the problem is, though, on that front, that even if Joseph does look good and even if you like the look of Perkins and even if Nonto has made an impact and and Gilhart, you know, can play far better than he has... You have an issue with Bamford, don't you? We'll see whether or not Bamford is fit for Tottenham. It was Rennie Maric who did the, the press conference afterwards. I've got a great story about that, which I'll tell shortly. But he said Bamford might be fit for the weekend. I think even if Bamford is fit for the weekend, it'd be very difficult to start him and unlikely that, that he would start. So at the moment, he's looking at having gone, I think I said this on Monday, calendar year without scoring by the time Leeds come back to, to resume the season and almost 18 months without completing 90 minutes. So the idea of relying on him or, or trusting that something big is going to come from him, I think becomes less and less credible and less and less feasible as, as time goes on. It's not to say that it won't, and it's not to say that he won't suddenly find his fitness and, and find his touch and, and his finishing again. But I think it's I think it's a bit of a leap of faith to say that's definitely going to happen. And they, they are going to have to face up to that as as time goes on, I feel, and, and January would seem like the, the point at which to do it. As far as testing the players go goes, I, I was saying in a piece this morning, which is predominantly about Perkins, but actually just broadened out into the, the talent ID um, aspect of what Leeds are doing. A lot of these players play well in cruise mode for the 21s, and I don't mean they're in cruise mode, but they look as if it's not exerting them too much. It's not that much of a challenge. So in order to really push them, you know, you've got Perkins who at one point it was something ridiculous like 10 goals in 13 games just scoring every week you've got Joseph who's almost a goal a game you've got JB who who does look like a Rolls Royce at that level plays really nicely so in order to test them in order to push them um, and Marsh spoken about this before you know those who almost fall betwixt and between not really under 21s anymore in terms of quality but not first team players in the amount of minutes they're getting either 
you've got to take advantage of these games, I think, and you have to use them. If if there was one thing I was going to take issue with, it would probably be the strength of the bench last night because there wasn't much there to dig them out when they needed it. But you have to say they were very close to penalty shootout, which I managed to jinx with 10 Aww. minutes to go. You said you'd got rid of the jinx. Well, the only thing is, does it count as a jinx? Because they might have lost anyway on penalties. I guess it probably does. It was a it? fair shout as well because I was watching that game and it, it felt like it was petering out, didn't it, at that point? It felt like both teams were I, kind I, of accepting penalties. I heard somebody in the press box say penalties after about 20 minutes um, but anyway we didn't we didn't make it and people were um, not best pleased about that <laughs> I admit, at, at half time I thought this has got nil nil written all over it but you know it's there's always a danger isn't there at this level of uh, of conceding a goal just going well, back to uh, just to say this is the, one of the weird things about the League Cup is that you end up getting quite a lot of drama out of it in some circumstances because of the penalty shootouts you know I was listening to Five Live on the way home and they were talking about how it's great value for money, the League Cup. You get penalties, you get all this drama at the end of it. But to take Newcastle Palace as an example, by all accounts, the game was utterly, utterly dreadful. So yes, you got penalty shootout at the end, but it wasn't much of a spectacle in the meantime. And I don't think it was particularly great value for money, um, most of it. It's just a strange competition, isn't it? It doesn't know where it's placed. It doesn't really know how to engage clubs until you get further down the line and, and get a proper sniff of winning it. It's redundant, isn't it? I mean, I th- really, I, I was sadly thinking... Sadly, I think it is. Yeah, I was thinking about this on, on the drive home back from here last night after we did the match ball, and I thought, what is the point of this competition? It's it's here because it was always here, but what is really the point of it now? I, I don't think the clubs want it, the players don't want it, fans don't really enjoy it. At best, you get a day out at Wembley if you're a Man City fan. They've really trimmed it back over the years as well, because it used to be two legs, every, every tie used to be two legs, which is crazy when you think about it and then it was on the night but extra time now it's just penalties you think at, at some point they're going to say just have do you both want to just, just do 45 minutes do you both yeah, just, just want to do a penalty shootout <laughs> yeah. and just get it over just and get it with. settled in an afternoon yeah, yeah. that would be fine uh, yeah I, I, would, I was listening to some of the commentary on Tuesday night um, the, the night before Leeds played and they would switch to various grounds like Brentford you know so looking at a big upset here looking at a big upset there and part of you is they're thinking, is it an upset though? Because do these clubs, are these clubs remotely bothered? I mean, that's the thing. We, we uh, sat here last night and we're like, oh, well, you know, we, we ended up talking about footballers in lingerie for some unknown reason. Yeah. But, and that's, and that's kind of the, would. yeah, the kind of level of, same uh, as us at Wolves, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, the kind of, the, the, the level of care that kind of goes into that defeat. Whereas, you know, like you lose a game in the Premier League and sometimes it feels like the world's crashing down around your ears, doesn't but, it? But then again, there was a Newcastle fan on the radio last night who was saying, we haven't won a trophy since 69. So if you were offering me the chance of a, a top four finish and qualification for the Champions League or the League Cup, which Newcastle must, must have a reasonable chance of winning now, given the, the way the competition's looking. He said, I'd take the League Cup every time. The, but, but the caveat, and we like the word caveat on this show, yes. the caveat is they're saying that from the luxury of knowing they're going to be safe this season, right? Whereas you put it, put, yes. you know, put yourself into your, our shoes and we just cannot afford if it's one versus the, the other, you know, and that went, and that's what I think factors into this, the... This is what I'm saying about constraining yeah, factors the, is... The, the team selection. Yeah. Um, Do, does your form allow you to play a really strong team? Does your squad allow you to play a really strong team? Does fitness um, injuries, do they allow you to play a really strong team? And and this always seems to come into play every time the League Cup comes around. So I understand what Marsh did last night. As I say, I think the bench could, could probably have been stronger. But I think if they get something at Spurs on Saturday, and we say this every season, don't we? If you end up getting something at Spurs, no, nobody cares. Yeah, I was going to say, a point at Spurs makes it all completely justified, which shows the, the relative Which is a shame, weight, because it? 
I'd love to win something. Like, yeah, it'd, be, yeah. it'd be amazing to have a day out of Wembley and actually see Leeds win something. The world's something. boldest man. You can do it. <laughs> we, <laughs> well, we had this conversation around the idea of Wigan, didn't we? Uh, one of the Q&As we did on one of our shows, somebody said, would you would you take the Wigan route and go down if it meant winning a trophy? Mm-hmm. And I think at the time I said, no, 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 no. But do you know what? Probably. It's just the, it's the just, grind inevitability of it at some point facing Man City in it and then losing anyway. You can have a good run. But you don't get to win it anyway. This so, is this so is what I'm saying. And when it's you just go, a day out. yeah, when you go through the past winners, it is basically your strongest and richest sides who've been dominating this for a decade. And obviously, you go back a little bit further, and you will pull out Swansea beating Bradford, and you know Bradford getting to the final, which was at the time really significant. Birmingham beating Arsenal, but even then, interspersed all the way through Man United, Chelsea, Tottenham. You know, it's it's always had this reputation of nobody really takes it seriously. But I think actually what's happened is that there are now clubs who know that they can kind of bounce through the early rounds without having to take big risks with players um, because they've got really good squad depth. And then when it comes to it and the you know chips are down in, in really difficult fixtures, semi-finals and finals, they can win it. Phil, timing. Talk to me about timing here because we have seen... Time this- is infinite. We have seen the emergence of this story about the 49ers. It's in, it's in the Times. Um, Mike yes. Ziegler has, has written the story. Less about what's in the story, I think, because the story is, if you haven't seen it, is that the 49ers have now got the money together to do a takeover at Leeds. There's not a, not a right lot in that story. Is there? There's not a huge amount of substance to it. What fascinates me here is the timing. Heading into the World Cup break, heading towards the January transfer window, mounting pressure at Leeds. Could you say there's been a little bit of building discontent over the course of this season about some, a little bit yeah what what do you make of that both the story and the timing it wasn't only Martin Ziegler's it was Matt Lawton as well who was working on the piece and they're both really really good journalists and I know both of them I've followed Martin's stuff recently he writes on Leeds fairly regularly and has a very good nose for this and, and really well connected I mean, it, it's not a secret at all that the 49ers at some point are going to do this, um, barring something weird going on. It's been the plan for for so long. But I think you can surmise on the base of Martin Wright in what, what he's written that he now thinks that, yeah, 100%, this will, this will go ahead. The, the question that's still there and pretty much the question that everybody's been asking is, is when? You know, when will they do this? And I think what started to interest me more is why... Why the delay, I guess, since 2021 where Leeds were at that really high point and without any question, in terms of competitive strength and, and the, the um, performance of the team have gone backwards since then, there's, there's no doubt at all. I mean, just just to recap, and, and this goes back to the story that we did almost exactly 12 months ago, so this time last year, about the option that the, the 49ers Enterprises hold, um, which is to buy the club from Radrazani before January 2024 for a sum, we were told at the time it would be the the agreed price was four hundred and seventy five million pounds. Although when we wrote it, that number was disputed somewhat. So I think to be a little bit more vague, you would say that Leeds are valued in the region of half a billion pounds, which would certainly seem around about right. That has been on the table now for over twelve months. Is still there. So yes, the, the question is still when. I think. Can I just pick your brains particularly on the language there because you're yes. saying it's by. 2024, January 2024. Some of the other reporting on this has said that's when the option becomes active, but you say it's to do the deal by 2024. Our understanding was that the option was there 
until 2024. That said, I haven't seen the paperwork for it. So I, I couldn't say categorically whether that's that's the case. I think, though, it's one of those where if the 49ers were intent on buying and Radrazani was intent on selling, it seems unlikely to me that even if it went beyond January 2024, that there wouldn't be scope to still do the deal and, and sell the club. It might be that the option will persist beyond there, but my I would have to look back at exactly what I wrote. But my um, my understanding of the piece I did with David Ornstein was that it was the option was there until 2024, which is why we expected it to be done before that date. Interestingly, when we ran the piece originally, the, the kind of feeling at Ellen Road was that it was probably going to come much sooner than that and probably likely to come before now. There is still, I think, a feeling that this isn't imminent as in next few weeks, but people do seem to be talking about next summer, which I guess, given that the option is January 2024, you would assume that... It's the logical time, isn't it? Well, common sense says that you do it off-season, doesn't it, rather than trying to do it mid-season. All the transitional aspects of senior management executive staff, if you're going to change any of them, it's much easier to do it, as Radrazani did when he bought Chilino. Because if you remember Radrazani, he invested first 50-50 with Chilino midway through the 16-17 season. Bought Chilino out at the very end of it. Um, went into that summer 2017 and appointed Angus Kinnear, appointed Victor Orta as director of football. Changed manager, Gary Monk left, brought in Thomas Christensen. There was a, a huge amount of recruitment. That that was down in no small way to the fact that there was the time and the space to do it. You know, there was the time and the space in order to make those decisions without having games coming at you thick and fast. And, and it would make far more sense to me to be doing a takeover when the season is off than it would in the middle of it. Obviously, the difference in this season is that the season is actually off for about six or seven weeks, so the equivalent of kind of pre-season, but not the equivalent of of a summer. Um, but, that, but that's what makes me wonder, Phil. Might they pull the trigger now? Just maybe if it's not the whole thing, maybe they do enough to flip it over past the 50% mark and therefore become majority owners. And then it gives them a bit of something going into January. Because, I mean, you can either back me up or deny this, Michael, but it feels like the club is in a, almost like a form of stasis at the minute. We're in a holding pattern until this this takeover happens. And and the, the split of shares, um, from what I gather, is it's 52.2% that um, Radrazani holds through Greenfield Investments. And the others are split between the two investment vehicles that the 49ers put together, plus a third investment fund, um, football investment fund, which holds 6.5%. Um, and the two 49ers ones are just over 20 So it's basically a 52-48 split, those famous numbers uh, again. But but does it fit, doesn't it feel like being so close to the threshold that we're just almost waiting now, particularly as we saw a zero net spend in the summer? I think it does feel like there's maybe not anyone quite taking responsibility for it because it always feels a bit like you can go, well, we're not, we're not the only people in charge of this. But then it means, I suppose it misdirects the attention of fans a little bit because it very much being people shouting at Victor Orta and Radrazani and Kinnear at the moment but they can kind of go, well, we're not the only people. There's, there's, And if people are investing money, you've obviously got to invest in equal amounts, otherwise you end up essentially subsidising the other shareholder, don't you? So mm. I think from that point of view, it does complicate things a bit. And and I mean, maybe this, maybe the transfer investment would have been exactly the same had it been entirely owned by the 49ers, but with the fact there hasn't particularly been any, I know the club would dispute that, but on the face of it, there hasn't been much in transfer investment across the summer. Yeah, as, as fans see it. I mean, but, but then again, but, they, they, but, but then they, they do point you to the three years, don't they? Like, I think that was the point they were trying to make was that yeah. they'd they'd spent 
over two seasons without selling anybody or without recouping any money from the transfer market. And this was the first summer where they'd sold Rafinha and sold Phillips, so they pulled in money to to finance deals. That that was almost what Michael was saying there was almost the gist of the piece that I did on Victor Orta on Tuesday, which was this age-old debate about is he a good director of football, is he a bad director of football, is his influence positive more often than not or is it negative more often than not? And and as I went on with it and as I thought about it more, I, I did kind of feel that, the yes, you know, there are kind of historic arguments about Orta that go back to things like Jean-Kevin Augustine on the negative side, the appointment of Bielsa on the, the very positive side. But where they're at at the moment, and I think the frustration you're seeing in him or the, the kind of annoyance, anger you're seeing in him feels to me because, like you said, there is a sense of, of stasis at the moment. And and, and I, sent, I, th- I think it, it doesn't help that the crowd are there seeing issues with the team and, and form and everything else and knowing that in the background there is actually the promise of change. You know, there are a lot of clubs and a lot of fan bases who will sit saying, we need new ownership, we need a change at the top, without actually any avenue to do that. You know, who is going to come and buy your club? Who's going to invest in it? Who is going to make it considerably better? I remember those years. I remember don't those you, years. Don't you just though? No, you do. That's the thing. Whereas there is actually an answer to that here, which is that the 40, the 49ers enterprises want to buy it. They've, they've got this option in place. It's been there for a while now. They've been creeping up and up and up with the shareholding towards 50%. And I think more and more you start to ask yourself, why the delay? You know, why, why would you not want to get in on this at a point where the club are kind of at the height as they were 18 months ago? The club are still in, in, are still in good shape. There's a lot good about the club. But obviously the stadium hasn't developed and that needs to happen um, in order for you know, capacity to increase, but also the value of the club to increase and, and all those, those different aspects. But... I don't think any any of us have ever doubted that they will do it. It's just that as time has gone on, you've thought to yourself, hasn't the point passed at which you would say, let's get on with this But, now? but we've been back and forth on this a few times, you and I, Phil, yeah. haven't we, like, off, off the show, um, saying, why haven't they done it yet? Why haven't they pulled the trigger? And I keep circling back to the same two points, that there's either a lack of money being in place, which this story would then say has now changed, or... Well, there has there has been a lot of talk about in the states the 49ers looking for finance investment to make sure that they had because it's it's not it wasn't a secret and it's not a secret that when they bought in um, the the really substantial investment after promotion it wasn't just the San Francisco 49ers who were involved in that it was essentially a consortium of various people who put money in in order to to make it happen. And I think one of the things that will be asked as and when they do buy the club will be who is involved in this? Where does the money come from? Who who are the influential people, individuals, organisations? Are you, are you saying you want LL Cool J as our chairman? Why not? Why not? <laughs> just just for, for some pure banter years, as they say. Um, but it, it's I think it will be a legitimate question. You know, the, the money... Because football clubs are hideously expensive to run these days. And... People will have seen the story about um, Liverpool being put up for sale. Onstein broke that last week. FSG in the market now to find a buyer for Liverpool. And I guess the valuation that's been put on them varies depending on what you read. But people seem to think it's in the region of about £4 billion, which compared to Liverpool, I think leads at around about half a billion would seem about right. You know, seems about, that's a lot of money. Huge but all clubs money. don't make money though, do they? Generally speaking, not that sort of money. Well, the question about FSG has been... Are they giving up on this because the the Super League 
doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And that avenue to go down and you know change your revenue streams and I guess to make money to to make a um, you know a massive profit. And I mean they should make a lot of cash out of selling Liverpool, but is the scope there to do it? And certainly at Leeds, I mean I go back to the accounts, the the most recent set of accounts um, that Leeds have released, where the profit was negligible to the point of when you start talking about Premier League finances to the the point of being irrelevant. You know, it was a tiny, tiny amount of cash that would buy you very little. It would, it would, not fair to say very little, it would buy you a nonto in the transfer market. But that's not the sort of deal that you need to be doing regularly in order to be a really competitive side. So it is incredibly expensive. So that, yeah, I think when, as and when the 49ers do come in, that will be one of the things that's discussed is who's the money? We should get the uh, the person who's doing Man City's commercial deals in because they seem to be doing really well on that. Yeah, they make a stuff. lot, don't they? Mm, from, do really well from on their it. commercial partners. Yeah. I, just going back to the interview we did with Radrazani in um, uh, in August, and we asked him about this 49ers Enterprises. What is happening with them? What's the plan? And he said, at the moment, there's no need to change. I'm happy. Um, I really dream to bring this club to play in Europe, and then I'm happy to leave. So, still some work to do here. We're very good friends with the 49ers. They're a solid partner. They let you work in peace and they're supportive. Yeah, they became very good friends. In this moment, there is nothing under discussion. They have, as you know, an option to take a majority in 2024, maybe before or that moment, something will be discussed. At this moment, we are super happy. Well, that brings me back to the, the thought that I didn't quite close out there, which was, have the 49ers either been looking for money or is there an agreement in place with Radrazani to maybe give him, let's say, three years in the Premier League? That's what he's asked for, which is why this has been in this holding pattern, I guess, is, is the phrase I'm, I'm looking well, you, for. You, or is it a combination of the two, maybe? I don't well, know. You can read into those quotes that Radrazani isn't ready to go or certainly wasn't ready to go when we spoke to him um, in August. The, the kind of vision that they've always had, um, and Alter is the same with this, that they want to see Leeds play in Europe before they think about moving on. Do you think that's beyond them, though? Do you, do you think that this ownership in the form of Radrazani, with the January window looming do you think they've just about run out of road I think it I I do wonder if it's beyond them European qualification and I don't mean that as a criticism because I don't think European qualification is an easy thing to aim for at all I think even more difficult is sustained European qualification you can dip in from time to time but I think dipping in once and then backpedalling further down the table is no good to anybody yes you get a few European trips and yes you get a, a little bit of an adventure like that but if you're being strategic about it and if you're really wanting to develop and grow, then European football should be what you're chasing time and time again. I think you have to remember that they are only two years back in the Premier League, to kicking on to two and a half years. So there is definitely a time frame in which it's unfair to demand um, moving towards Europe. But given how expensive it is now in the transfer market, the expenditure that's needed to compete, I do wonder whether they they're able to do that. And I think the fact that the 49ers are in the wings and the fact that the 49ers are there want to take this on and will have ideas of expansion and growth tells you that it, it does need that at some point. Nobody, Nobody's really denying that, I don't think. Is it fair of fans to demand that we not be so close to relegation at this stage? Or does that need more time? Is it just the nature of the Premier League that it is? It's a, you know, it's a 20 team league. It's very, very tight. You have anybody who's from about eighth downwards who's still in that mix. Does it just need a bit of time there? Or are we right to say we shouldn't be down there? Well, one of the things I was saying in the the piece about Alter is that on the one hand, I, I don't think Leeds have, have always been or are particularly good at, at accepting fallibility or accepting mistakes when, when they're made. 
I also think some of us, me included, are probably not particularly fair always at remembering that it is a properly ruthless division and that actually it doesn't take a huge number of mistakes and every club makes mistakes. It doesn't take a huge number to get you into trouble, you know, or to, or to pile on top of you. I think you can accept being in the mix um, if you feel as if everything is kind of in order. I think when you have frustrations like the centre forward that didn't come in in the summer, the, the absence of, of a left back and so on, you start to see ways in which a club could have covered the back or could have, mit- I guess, mitigated the risk of getting sucked into the bottom three. But, I mean, all of all of a sudden you look at the table and there are clubs who are in trouble. You know, Leeds are not out, by any means out of the woods um, after the two wins that they've had. But I should say as well that somebody made the point on, on Twitter that, you know, when we were chatting on Monday about the Bournemouth game, um, I was saying there's still things to be concerned about in that game despite the result. But if you flip that on your, on its head, you can say that there have been games like Arsenal, for example, where they've played extremely well and taken nothing. So it's, the, it's kind of the, the same in reverse. But they're not the only club it, by any stretch who are under the cosh. I mean, take Wolves as an example. You know, they are, they are not in good shape at all. Forrest spent a lot of money, signed a lot of players during the summer, not in good shape, stuck at, at the bottom of the, of the table. I think if you can hold around mid-table for a duration of, I don't know, maybe th- three, four seasons after you come up, that seems to me to be totally acceptable. I know it's not romantic and I know it's not um, massively ambitious, but I think if you're sensible and you don't have a huge injection of cash from somewhere, then you have to be realistic about what it takes to make incremental steps in a league like this. I think, I think that's possibly where the board have slipped up, though, because one year in, they were talking about yes. expanding the stadium and about European football. And so when there's no sign of it 18 months later, everyone's going, but you said. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a fair point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and, and well, does the same carry over into transfers, Phil, as well? Like um, I was just about to say similar, but regards to my own frustrations about what they failed to do in the summer um, when Angus Kinnear wrote that, uh, you know, about having two international number nines, one of which still isn't fit up to Christmas um, and one that we're still not sure about. Is Rodrigo in the Spain squad? Speaking uh, of which? The Spain squad gets announced Friday tomorrow. Um, oh. So we'll find out about your entry. We'll talk a little bit about World Cup squads in, in part three. I was just going to say, sorry, yeah, just to go back to, to that thought was in terms of recruiting a striker and a left back. And I know they got, they got Furpo who was probably in the price bracket that I'm talking about with 13 million. But the failure like to get the striker when it was kind of staring you in the face, and then you get the finger wagging attitude from the, the the board in various different forms, be it Twitter or program notes or shouting into a camera lens in the West Stand. <laughs> That's what I think puts people's noses out of joint a little bit. We we saw the evidence for what's happened way back then. And I think the frustration is like, so they're going for like Cody Hackpo or whoever at 30, 40 million pounds, Charles de Ketelaar, which is fair enough. But to then not have a, a contingency or say, do you know what? Actually, there may be, if we're smart about this, if we use our street smarts, get some other players in who can fill these gaps and even, you know, not having warm bodies. Well, sometimes you need warm bodies. You know, you look at like someone like who's recruited at Palace, for example, Elise, they got for what, 10 million or under or something like that. And I know we we spoke about him on this show, didn't we? I think some time before. Little things like that where you can be a bit smarter in the market. You don't always have to go for these Victor shoot for the moon signings. We may have covered this ground before, I think, um, more than more than once. No, I... The shoot for the moon signings look great on paper um, and are fantastic if you make them happen. Although De Ketelaar is not having a happy time at AC Milan, from what I can gather. Yeah, but he's a, bro- he's a broken toy now, which means Victor will like him even more. Well, we were uh, having a joke this morning, weren't we, about um, R- RDP yeah. and the, the mighty Sid Lowe saying, um, let me just see if I can dig this up. Something on the lines of RDP confuses me. 
because he just doesn't look very good. <laughs> he, should, he should be good and he just doesn't yeah, I find doesn't RDP disconcerting. Should be good, but just isn't. <laughs> yes. Um, so there, there we go. You take his um, name out of your uh, mouth. Uh, I am sorry about that, yeah. <laughs> but De Kettler is not having a good time at, um, at Milan. I think you're right. I, I don't think everything needs to be spectacular. Although Radrizani did describe De Kettler as the kind of icing on the cake signing. And if you're being fair and you look at the other transfers that they did during the summer, they were kind of sensible, weren't they? You know, Adams, yeah, yeah, Aronson, yeah. Christensen, yeah. they weren't in the outlandish bracket of that's a wild punt or you're unlikely to get that one done, Rocker. They were, they were realistic and I think could be the skeleton of a good team, competitive team. The one thing I always try to remind myself is that you cannot expect clubs to have unlimited amounts of money. There's always going to be limitations for all but a few. And I've never ever gone along with the argument that if they don't have enough money to do X, then they should pass it over to somebody who has enough money, who has Y amount of cash and therefore can do it. Because those people don't always exist. Um, what you do have at Leeds is you have a, a takeover kind of there waiting to happen, which is, to all intents and purposes, already agreed at a price and terms and, and everything else. What that would actually mean from the 49ers is, again, something that needs to be asked and something that needs to be explained you know how will they differ how would they differ what would the transfer policy look like under them in comparison to to what it's looked like under under Radrizani but I I don't object to the fact that Leeds are dealing in the bracket of you know 10 million pounds for Rocker 25 million pounds or thereabouts for Anson Adams that sort of thing I think that's where I expect them to be dealing if they can push the boat out and get Gakpo or a De Ketla as we all thought De Ketla might be then absolutely great, but you've got to pay the money. You know, you've just got to go big on them. You can't sort of do the dance and 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 then get caught out at the end. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is a lesson in those that actually it is a, it's more advantageous at this point to shoot a little bit lower and make sure that you're covered. Just get just go steady. I was going to say you yeah. said about icing on the cake. There's a bit of thinking. Where's the cake? Have we got? Are we, are we putting the icing before the cake here? Because like a left back, a striker, these are yep. positions that need filling and. Both Gakpo and De Kettler, neither of them were a position we necessarily needed. I don't think neither neither an out and out strikers. Well, are well it's perfect when you come up, come and look at the links to um, Ben Brereton Diaz. I've got to a point now where I just let sign him, just sign him. <laughs> if you can get him now, six months before the end of his contract, for however much it costs, get him because he is perhaps not just a warm body but a, a decent body to have in there as well. You know, but he, he might not work out, but he'll work out to an extent, um, and he probably will be fitter than not fit. Hopefully. Sometimes you do need to, to cut your cloth a little bit. Um, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, the, the the whole author debate interests me because it goes much broader than him, doesn't it? It's much wider. It's more about ownership and it's about a regime as opposed to an individual person in it. And I always remind myself that author is, although he's a massively influential employee at Leeds, he is still an employee. You know, I, I was saying in, in the piece that I wrote, every owner should be told, because criticism always goes up, doesn't it? You, you have a go at the players, but then... Criticism moves towards the head coach because, in the end, he's coaching them. He's in charge. But then, with the head coach, the he criticism was moves by, up by yeah. director of football um, or chief executive or whoever. But then, at the top, you've got your chairman or your owner. And I was saying in this piece, every owner who comes in should be told: ultimately, it's your fault. Ultimately, in the end, you will be the one who takes the criticism because beyond you, there's nowhere left to go apart from God or whichever deity you believe in. But yeah. it is the chairman who's who's at the top of it. And the thing about 
this regime at Leeds is they have taken the club from a position that was just meandering championship side to such a better standing um, than they, they were in. And I think the frustration as people see it is that Bielsa petered out as it did, that they've gone from that, you know, really, really high standpoint of 2021 to a dip now. You know, it was flying really high at that point and, and it has dipped. But I think there needs to be a fair amount of nuance in the debate where you can say, it has been good this. You know, there have been really, really good aspects of this. But the 49ers are clearly in the wings and perhaps a change would not be a bad thing. I was thinking about this. I've been reflecting on it. You know, and I've, I've asked the question before about are we as fans too entitled? Do we ask for too much from from our clubs? I wonder, is there something intangible at Leeds that maybe the 49ers might be able to do differently? Do you agree about this? Like the sense of calm and control and kind of nobility, almost, if you like? Because I think that's one of the things that, one of the intangible things anyway, that Leeds fans would like our club to do is behave like a grown-up, weighty Premier League club. And I think at times people feel like, you know, you look at the, the badge scenario, you look at John Kevin Augustine, and you see a club that doesn't necessarily do that sometimes at its worst. At its best, it's great. But when it's at its worst, people see those things. I find this with um, football writing really. When it's going badly wrong at Leeds, everybody hates everyone, me included. Um, I mean, they, they hate me as opposed to me hating everybody. I'm not generally a, a hateful person. <laughs> Some of the things you've said are fair, Phil. Although I can, I can make um, exceptions. And when everything's going really well, everybody's happy as as it comes every player is great everybody you, you give players so much more time and space and and patience and everything else and i think that probably apl- applies to somebody like Otter, for example i mean this is definitely the era of extreme emotions in football so perhaps he's absolutely made for it because he is an extremely emotional guy I think. but when, but when <laughs> but when you're away at derby people are quite enjoying aren't they the amusement of him with his binoculars and everything else but when it's when it's different and when it's more negative and when it's the agitation that we saw on Saturday, it rubs people up the wrong way. Although I did see plenty of people say, if you're going to dish it out and he has a pop back, then you know, you've know you kind of got to be prepared to take that. I think to say what, again what I said on Monday, it just felt like an odd occasion to do it because yeah, it was a, it was a properly rousing hellfire win, that one. But it was not as if it was a 6-0 route. You know, there'd been some pretty desperate moments during that game and it just felt like the day to kind of take the win, enjoy the drama um, and the kind of buzz of the uh, of the second half and just let it lie. You yeah. know, And I think I, I, I get the sense that the apology that he put out was pretty much saying that himself. Yeah, and maybe we need to all just take a few steps back from the constant sense of existential terror that seems to surround Leeds United, particularly in the Premier League because we know what relegation entails and there's a, there is terror built into the idea of another 16 years out of this division, even if we don't like what goes on in the division itself. I think football more than ever, and I'm, you know, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, is definitely in the routine now of every game being an exercise of who needs taken out and lynched, you know, who is sensational and the next coming of Jesus. You know, it, it is that kind of, kind of swerve between... I guess extremes where it, sometimes it's quite difficult to sit in the middle and say it was alright that yeah it was fine <laughs> let's, all, let's all go home yeah you know you were saying last week about players at Man City just really good <laughs> just really good like just really need them too much more than that and and I mean that's a bit facetious because football's so complex and there's so many complexities to it 
but it's it just feels like an emotional place at the moment, Leeds, and has done for for quite a while. And I felt that looking at Arthur and seeing what was going on at the weekend, that absolutely no reason to disbelieve what he's saying about you know intimidation and abuse because it has happened before, and, and I, I'm absolutely certain that that will be true. And you you just cannot tolerate that because it it takes football down a really slippery slope if you do whatever the reasons for it. You know, it is it is a sport. And it, it is a, a pastime and you, you do have to see it through that lens from time to time. But it, I think what was happening on Saturday was just, again, a kind of expression of the the underlying discontent or the discord that there is between the boardroom and the crowd, which has kind of been growing for a while. Hi, I'm Adam Crafton and I'm the host of the Athletics' new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, you never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about should that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself and hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. One to go before the World Cup then, Phil. We head to uh, to White Hart Lane-ish on uh, on Saturday. Um, just a reminder, as I said at the start of the show, that the this show will be taking a break until just before Christmas, unless something happens in the intervening period. Have Leeds got a chance here? Everyone now, because we're riding off the back of increasing body of evidence that we can turn it on against so-called big teams, is, is there an opportunity here for Leeds to get something from uh, from Spurs? Not only that, I think Tottenham, but certainly the fan base down there, have got themselves into the mindset of there's, something to, of, <laughs> there's something to be had from them. Um, on the, kind of on this tour of strange teams at the moment, we discussed this about Bournemouth and the way in which their stats are kind of contrary to their league position in a in a big, big way. And Tottenham are going through this bizarre streak of starting almost impossibly badly time and time again, giving themselves too much to do, dropping points all over the place or desperately having to claw them back as they did against Bournemouth, just as, as Leeds did against Bournemouth. And there does seem to be a fair amount of discontent about the way Conte's setting up, um, about whether he's ambitious enough with his lineups, whether he's aggressive enough with his lineups, I think the general feeling is that he isn't or he could be more so um, and should be given some of the players they've got because they do have a really good squad Spurs. Um, there's some some quality players um, available to him. But they are fourth. You know, they are fourth in the table. It's just that so often when I hear them discussed, it seems to revolve around the subject of nobody's quite sure how. Just teetering, teetering on perpetual yeah, crisis. We're, we're yeah. fourth but nobody's quite Sure, how? In the same way as I suppose you could maybe say Leeds are twelfth, and how's kind of how has has that happened given where they where they were? So the odds are going to favour Tottenham, and and people will I think look for a home win this weekend. But I do feel like there could be something in it for Leeds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? I think we could be three 0 up or three 0 down at half time in this game. It, it could go any one of of all the the ways. Yeah, and this weekend is going to be weird because. It's the last one before the World Cup. So, Do you think if, it'll affect the players a bit, even subconsciously? Well, Marsh, Marsh, Marsh has asked us um, last week, I think it was, and he said he'd seen nothing to suggest that that was the case. 
I mean, there, there are the call-ups have, have been starting to come. So just to recap where we are at the moment, Adams, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, both in U, the USA squad, as expected. Um, Rasmus Christensen is in the Denmark squad again, as expected. Ilan Milley hasn't made the France squad. Um, Magnana, AC Milan injury has obviously taken him, but um, Mandanda, who's wildly experienced, is is going as one of the, the three goalkeepers. Robin Koch hasn't made the Germany squad. Um, he's been left out of that, which I think will be a big disappointment for him. We're still waiting for Laurenti Rodrigo to uh, Rodrigo to be announced. That's Friday. Also Holland for strike. That is is Friday as well. Matthias Kleek is due to be um, the Poland squad. Should be this afternoon. A couple of journalists in Poland. Um, I was reading a piece by TVP Sport in which they were saying they don't think Kleek will be included. That was their gut feeling. Um, and seems to be the gut feeling of the press over there, but but we'll find out when that comes. So obviously the, there are people with the uh, with the tournament to come. There are people who who don't have it to come. But this you would think is the weekend where if there were players out there who were feeling slightly flaky about the thought of being injured and missing Qatar, then this would be the the weekend where they kind of hold something back. And what was quite interesting, Spurs beaten in the League Cup last night by Nottingham Forest. Harry Kane was substituted earlier. Uh, quite early in the game, and Conte said afterwards he's really tired. He's really tired. Good. Well, that's a shame, isn't it? He should yeah. rest him for for the weekend. Yeah, yeah just rest everybody. So, yeah. Son, Son is out injured. Yes, but he's going to be in the career squad regardless. Said the career manager, um, because he's too important to them. So he said, even if he's injured, he's going to be in. Mm. Um, Kane should have a rest. Yes, and they should just all take it very, very easy. Just play the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It Do works, a bench like Marsh's bench at Wolves. Yeah, why not? Why not? Um, so, yeah, I I think. I said, I was saying on our Q&A, we need to retire the phrase free hit, I think, because free hit is completely impossible to define. But I feel as if for the first time in a long time, Leeds can probably go and play with a little bit of freedom on Saturday. Certainly a little bit less pressure than was there before, say, Anfield, you know, when it really was absolutely at its at its height. We have redefined free hit a little bit, haven't we, this season? People are now viewing it as, well, actually... We, we turned it on against Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool. Why, you, sometimes why not? on a free hit, you actually can make contact with the ball, yeah. I think is the thing. Whereas yeah. not just get spanked 6-0, 7-0 or yeah. whatever, which, it, oh, is, coming, which is what it came to be. It's coming from a, a position of we're absolutely crap, so we might as well just go give this a go and see what it turns up. But actually, we're in these games. There were loads of free hits towards the end of Bielsa's first Premier League season. Loads, because Leeds were safe and everything else. So, you know, as much as I don't think he understands the concept of free hit at all, that was not in his, his his mindset as a coach there were lots of games that weren't going to make any difference to Leeds unless it was about qualifying for Europe or, or something like that I think even with this game you might say well it's Spurs so it's difficult and they're fourth and they've got a better squad and, and this that and the other but if you lose at Tottenham then the scope is there for the table to close up again and you start the day going that's a free hit and by the end of it you're saying hmm not really liking the look of, um, of how the table is I think if they if they were to take anything from this, say a point, Leeds would be absolutely delighted with the league position um, come the World Cup. And I don't mean delighted vis-a-vis how they would have hoped this season would have gone at the outset, but vis-a-vis where they were. How it unfolded, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. absolutely. And do you know what? They'd be right to be proud, I think, as no, well. I think, they, I think they would, yeah. I think we, you know, we in part two there, we spoke at length about maybe some of the, the mistakes we think they've made. But there is also credit due as well to both the manager... And the people above him, because say you know if the if the if the failure tends to travel up the uh, up the pyramid there, so the success should too as well. And I know yeah. owners and directors and stuff don't get maybe 
the love they feel they're entitled to receive for stuff like this, and maybe that's part of what Rod Rosani's well, like, then credit should be delivered, shouldn't they? Shouldn't well, they? I, I hear it said a lot that they were lucky to fall across Bielsa. You know, they were lucky that they had Bielsa. But that was deliberate, wasn't it? It was deliberate, <laughs> and it was a deliberate pick on Alta's part. And more to the point, I would ask the question of who else was going out to recruit Bielsa at that point. He'd gone from Lille. It had gone really badly at Lille. Um, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a kind of outstanding or highly, highly influential coach because he absolutely was. But that was a specific choice. And then beyond that, you have to create the framework around about it to make it work in, in the way that it did. So fundamentally, massively, massively down to the coach, but also down to the club being able to function in a way where it all worked for him and, and it all happened up until the point where obviously it, it kind of fell apart. And yeah, you're right. I mean, two things here. The first is that the players quite clearly have not abandoned Marsh. I mean, you could not accuse them of that at all. Between Anfield and the Bournemouth game, you've kind of seen you've kind of seen their motivation and their their attitude, and you've also seen the way in which the younger players, who he's kind of had to rest on quite heavily, you know, Somerville in particular, but Nonto against Bournemouth, the way in which they've actually come into it, and rather than as you've seen with kids in the past, thinking circumstances are dreadful here and bloody hell the atmosphere is awful you know thinking get in there make it happen do your thing and that's what I liked about the kids at Wolves last night was they all seemed to be playing their game you know playing as if they were at Thorpe Arts for the 21s I didn't I was watching Perkins early on and he just looked as at ease I thought as as he had been in, in his better performances for the academy so yeah it's totally totally unfair to dig away through bad form and then when the form turns to pretend that it's down to something else entirely or that um, that no credit is due. I don't think it changes the fact that there are issues with this team and I don't think it changes some of the concerns I have about this team and, and the way they're set up. But as I say, you know, if they were to come away from Tottenham with a point and reach the World Cup on 16 from 14 games and be three, four points ahead of the bottom three, chuffed to best with that. Yeah, the, um, the route to that destination doesn't really matter does it when it comes to the shake-up you just look at the table and the points let me throw a scenario at you now um, both of you uh, two weeks today uh, England face the United States Thanksgiving weekend big occasion in the States it's going to be a big World Cup occasion um, we go to Saturday Tottenham Stadium Tyler Adams full-blooded challenge Harry Kane Harry Kane limps off smash <laughs> Tyler Adams becomes villain uh, ahead of the World Cup in all the papers it's fine by me. I have to be honest. I think if if <laughs> you're going to be a villain, Leeds is a pretty good place to be a villain. Come, come have a go. <laughs> See what happens. Um, well, that, that I guess will be the, the test on Saturday, the one to who is going into those challenges, who's pulling out of them, who's trying to get off the pitch early, who's looking after themselves. Perhaps nobody, you know, perhaps nobody will be doing that. And, you know, I, I don't really get the impression that Kane is that sort. I mean, I was watching him in um, Tottenham's last Champions League game and his elbows were all shredded and bleeding and everything else. He's a committed guy. I don't, you know, and and seems, I think Tottenham as a club seemed to matter to him fairly, you know, and I know, I know, I know especially very, when he was trying to get I know to, Man, to Man nearly City. out the door to Manchester City, but he's given them some service, you know, and he's a player who quite easily could have moved on. You know, you didn't see Haaland hanging around at Dortmund forever, did you? You know, he's he's off to off to City um, and, and doing what players tend to do. So yeah, but you're right. People will not be best impressed if um, Adams two foots him and it's, <laughs> no, it's the old prayer mat for the metatarsal routine. On our strikers, assuming Bamford and Gellhart are not fit, which I 
I kind of have my doubts about both. Who's first off the bench then, do you think now, given what we saw of, of both Perkins and uh, Joseph yesterday? It's a great question. Great question. Because I was saying in the piece that I wrote today that to this point, it's been, you're thinking Bamford plays at nine. If everybody's fit, Bamford plays at nine. You could throw Rodrigo in there, but you're really looking at Gelhart and saying, you know, if it's not Bamford, you like to see Gelhart giving it a go. Although there's the argument about whether or not Gelhart is actually better in a slightly more withdrawn role rather than, than up front. But now you have Joseph, who I think has got seven and eight, seven goals in eight games for the academy. You've got Perkins, who was on that ridiculous run where just like every time he turned up, he, he was scoring. Um, again, with, you know, with Perkins, can play a more withdrawn role. So where he's actually best, I think is probably still a moot point. But you've got Nonto, Somerville's clearly a winger, so you're going to play him, him out wide. But you do have a bit of choice there, actually. They're quite, it's the irony of what's going on with senior experienced first-team strikers is that they're kind of spoiled for choice at academy level. They've got loads of options who all look really good. And I have to say, you know, again, to sort of balance out the criticism that there's been, I do think the talent idea at Leeds is, is very decent. How much do we pay for Joseph? Joseph was around about a million pounds, I think. Um, and likewise for Gilhart, thereabouts are, are not necessarily so much. Perkins um, has been a... TBC the, the article I wrote kind of led off on the fact that the the transfer which should feasibly have become messy and okay it was messy to negotiate but should have become messy or was most likely to become messy was Rafinha to Barcelona it was the only place he was going to go Barcelona were a nightmare to deal with and right up to the end there was this nagging doubt about do Barcelona have the money you know are they, are they, are they going to pay for him um, and from what I'm told they've been good as gold Barcelona you know they, they've they, the penalty clause that was in there became a contingency and nothing more and they, they stuck to their obligations. And weirdly enough, the, the deal that's become complicated or has caused you know most friction has been far less high profile. Perkins from West Ham, you'll remember the statement that um, West Ham put out when he left saying that he rejected a contract with them and they were annoyed because they thought another club had been trying to entice Perkins to, to uh, release himself from his scholarship down at West Ham. He subsequently goes to Leeds. Leeds and West Ham are arguing about the cash. That West... was naughty of that other club that tried to do uh, that. Uh, you know, I'm glad well, he came to us. Leeds obviously deny any wrongdoing. Um, and they would they they think that Perkins, on the basis of first team experience, wage at West Ham, um, you know, similar tribunal awards or fees agreed for comparable academy players that he's worth in the region of about 750 grand something like that six figures West Ham would like much more for him so obviously there's this argument going on and the feeling from the beginning was always that this will end up getting um, decided at, at tribunal but again to look at him and look at what he's doing in the academy if they were to get him for 750 grand good signing mm. um, one final thought on Spurs then before we head off uh, dare we make a prediction about this nah <laughs> Had I still been on a roll with this um, jinx, jinx fest, yeah. then I would have I would have said absolutely. But I do. I, I'm I'm going there with a bit of optimism. I yeah. think. Yeah. Dangerous, isn't it? Optimism. Though it is. It is. Um, is it folly though? Well, we'll know, won't we? By the time Saturday tea time comes around, we will do. I think they. I think they need a result, though, don't they? Um, I don't think it's going to do much for the mood um, if they get beaten on on Saturday. They. Same for everybody, isn't it? There is a long, long stretch coming up and a lot, a lot of time to stew if it's... Um, Imagine three wins on the bounce, though. Imagine that in the Premier League. Especially, I I, I always expected them to beat Bournemouth, although not at 3-1 down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that, that was coming. But I really did not anticipate anything coming back from Anfield. And I thought Tottenham might be 
a more difficult game than it's currently looking. I mean, we'll, we'll, I think you get. A, I, I suspect you get a feel very early on down in London for how that game is going to go. And you said could see us being three 0 up at halftime. Could see us being three 0 down. I think you'll know soon enough. Yeah. You know, I think it'll become clear pretty rapidly how how the balance of that's going to be. I mean, it was Conte's first game and Leeds were down there last year. It was a really, really good match. And I think Spurs probably edged it on the strength of how they played in the second half. But given that Leeds were out of form and things weren't going too well and the injuries were absolutely ludicrous. I mean, I think that was the first time that Archie Gray had shown up, you know, at the age of about seven. And I I thought Leeds were unlucky not to get anything yeah. from it. I did think it was a, a good game where they, they could have taken something. So play well and who knows who knows indeed uh, Phil one more show to go then before uh, the World Cup break we're having five weeks off unless something happens at Ellen Road and we'll be back just before Christmas but before we uh, we head off from this episode we have a snippet from the Athletics brand new documentary series it's called Away From Home they've been granted access all areas access to Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League campaign obviously all their normal lives completely turned on their head by the Russian invasion of Ukraine True, it is remarkable. It is such a good listen. And if you want to hear a bit of that, stick about, hear a snippet now, and you can find the first three episodes of that in your uh, in your podcast app. Just search for Away From Home. Enjoy this teaser. Can, can, can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yeah. of course. You can ask, ask a question. I try to answer. Sure. So, so I suppose to, just to begin, can you explain the past couple of days how how you are and also if your family is okay first of all yes uh, uh, in in the morning of uh, 24th of, of the february we woke up after the uh, uh, sounds of bombs and uh, went to basement This is the captain of Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk. His name is Taras Stepanenko, and he's one of the most famous footballers in his country. He was born before the collapse of the Soviet Union, he played over 70 times for Ukraine, and he's been with his club since 2010. I called him as war broke out to learn what was happening firsthand. Multiple attacks on cities right across uh, the country. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, uh, has, has just tweeted that uh, the country is under full-scale invasion uh, by Russia. I have a wife and three sons. One uh, seven years, one eight and one four. Okay. What do you tell them? Uh, my, my, my wife scared so much uh, we, we started to read news but my my son they i think they uh, they don't uh, understand clearly what happened now i think they they they're scared too stepanenko's life changed like so many other ukrainians did when russia invaded the country in early 2022 but six months on unlike most men his age he's fortunate enough to do his normal job again, to play football and to play in the Champions League, where the best teams from across the continent face off to be crowned kings of Europe. For Ukraine, football is more than a sport now. It's a unifier. It's a statement to the world that they are strong. And Shakhtar Donetsk is the embodiment of that sentiment. We are showing to all the world that uh, 
that uh, we are still alive. Nothing cannot kill us. And we are in the war for 2014. It will be difficult to play, but we must play. Unfortunately, we are thinking just about Ukraine now. And uh, if this fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that, we will not stop to play. We'll play and we will win. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. Over the course of this series, I'll be tracking Shakhtar's unique football journey as they navigate their way through football's toughest contest, all whilst there's a brutal war raging on their doorstep, forcing them out of their own country. You didn't sleep, you, you cannot sleep. Three days, three days without sleep. I'm proud that I'm part of this team, of this club, and today we can be proud because this victory is, is for Ukrainian people, for Ukrainian citizens. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that, uh, to show that we are fighting, that we are still alive. <laughs> this is Away From Home, episode one, We Believe in Miracles. The Phil Hay Show.